Sundays, I feel like we just need to keep on singing. But alas, a sermon must be preached. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, and beginning in verse 14, it reads, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he, fail, he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before you today, delighted to worship you. And Lord, we just ask that today that we would leave worshiping you stronger than we did coming in here. And so, Father, we just pray for the one here today who has come to church just feeling distant from you. Maybe they are bogged down by the world, the flesh, the devil. And so, Father, whatever that is, we just ask that today that they would look to Christ and find healing for the troubles they're going through. That we would, as a church, Lord, that we would be regularly repenting of our sin and turning to our only Savior who died to pay for those sins. And so, Father, help us to live today, not depending on ourself, but upon you, upon your power. So help us to overcome the evil one, to stand against the world, to kill the sin that is in our flesh, and help us to do so for your glory and your people's good. Help us to understand this truth. Help me to only say your words, not mine. We're not here for that. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was the thrill of a lifetime. In fact, it was the most exhilarating experience of his entire life. It was something that he had always dreamed of. And yet there he was, with his dreams coming true, cruising down the road, experiencing something he had never experienced before. Yes, it was something, as we said, he dreamed about. It was something he had always wanted to experience, but he was never quite old enough. Until today, for today was his fifth birthday. (laughs) Too young to drive, you say? Not able to turn the wheel, you scoff and mutter. Unable to reach the pedals, you think? Well, not for this young man, because this young man was fully competent and fully capable. And why? Because he had help. And so, with the help in hand or as he sat there in his father's lap, we might say, with this child having the biggest smile on a five-year-old's face that has ever been had, he was cruising down the road without a bump or even a swerve. And why? Not because he, on his own, was fully competent and fully capable, but because of his fully competent and fully capable father, who enabled him to do what he could never have done on his own. And while this 
point seems perfectly obvious to us, doesn't it? Well, for this young boy, it wasn't quite so obvious. And so many weeks later, there he was sitting in the car as his mom went into the grocery store, something you're not allowed to do anymore, by the way, and he noticed that the car was left running. And so then he decided, well, you know what? I'm going to take the car for a little spin around the old block. After, a while, after all, why shouldn't I? I drove it before, and it went just fine. Sure, Dad helped, but it was only a little bit. And by now, I think I've got it down. I think I can handle this. And actually, I'm a pretty natural, competent driver on my own, I think. And so up he climbed into the driver's seat, remembering to buckle himself in first, because his dad taught him that. And then he reached up, grabbed a lever, and pulled it down to the G, because he remembered G meant go. And off he went, driving that car just as he did before. Well, almost, (laughs) with a slight deviation off the path. And in a moment, this young boy learned that he wasn't quite as competent, he wasn't quite as capable as he had originally thought. For the truth was, without his father, how competent and capable was he? Zilch. Nada. And it led to disastrous results because he didn't realize this. You know, church, when it comes to navigating our faith, When it comes to driving down the highway of faith, we might say, we are just as reliant upon God as this young boy was upon his father for driving the car that he drove. And the second we forget that, make no mistake, we too will crash. And and a whole lot worse than just going through the front of a grocery store. I know the boy who did this, by the way. (laughs) Wasn't me, but anyways, we will crash. We absolutely will. And if you want to know exactly what I'm talking about, just look at the disciples and the way they crash in Matthew chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 17, if if you would, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 20. And in this passage, we see them crash, and we see them crash in a really big way. How? How do they crash? By failing to do something they had already done countless of times. And what was the thing they failed to do that they had done countless of times? Cast out demons. This was not their first stroll around the block with casting out demons. This was not their first attempt. They had done it successfully many times. And yet here, they fail terribly. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, a few weeks, right? When we were in Matthew chapter 10, more than a few weeks, then you remember how Jesus commissioned his disciples with power to go out on his behalf to represent the kingdom's power which had come and was found in the Messiah. He enabled them to go out and do what? To heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. And this was something that was given to the early disciples. This isn't something you and I can do today, despite what you see on TV, right? This is something that was given to the early disciples to announce that the kingdom was being offered to the Jewish people. And so they went out and they did just that. And they did it with flying colors. And yet, in our passage this morning, they fail miserably at it. They fail miserably at doing something that they had accomplished time and time again. They fail to cast out the demon that is in this young boy. Now why? Why did they fail to cast out this demon? It's because they had forgotten what enabled them to do it in the first place. And what enabled them to do it? God, right? Simple question, simple answer. God is the only one who has the power, and by his mighty power, he enabled them to do what they could never do on their own. 
And the second they forgot that, they crashed. And so too, applying this to ourselves, church, though we are not in the business of casting out demons today, there's a whole lot of things that we are called to do as we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And if we don't do that by the Spirit's power and we try to do it by our own power and start to get, you know, maybe start thinking that we're a little more competent and capable than we are, we are going to crash as well. So with this in mind, this passage here shows us three things that we must realize if we are to avoid crashing spiritually. And here's what they are. To avoid a spiritual crash, we must remember, first, the power of the kingdom, secondly, the power of our God, and third, the power of our dependence. Now, last week we looked at verses 1 through 13, which describe for us what? The Mount of Transfiguration. That was a wonderful passage. If you missed it, it's online. Go back and listen to it. It was probably one of the high points in the book of Matthew, the text. It was just remarkable. And in that text, we see the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, having a mountaintop experience, right? It's not just a, a saying. It was a literal mountaintop experience that also had the, you know, the, the positive or successful type of stuff that we typically apply. You know, when we say we have a mountaintop experience, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that was a positive or successful or an encouraged, happy or thrilled kind of a thing we go through, experience, right? And so for Peter, James, and John, that's exactly what they had on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw what? They saw Jesus' royal splendor. He showed them a glimpse of their glory. He showed them a glimpse of the glory that would be on full display throughout the literal physical kingdom, which is coming one day soon to a city near you. He showed them that, and it blew them away. Peter was dumbstruck by it. They fall on their faces before the glory of God when they see this sneak peek. And if you remember, Jesus showed them that preview because he wanted to bolster their faith. And why did their faith need bolstering? Well, because what did they expect the Messiah to do? They expected the Messiah to come and set up the physical kingdom with might and with power. Boom, it would be like the beaches of Normandy being invaded. He would come in, conquer the enemies, set up his kingdom, and he would reign powerfully from the nation of Israel. Israel would go from here up to here over all the kingdoms of the earth, as Scripture prophesied that he would do. And so that's what they expected. But what did Jesus say he was there to do? He was there to suffer, to be a servant, and ultimately to die. And you remember two weeks ago when we saw Jesus say that, after Peter says, you are the Christ, then Jesus says, I'm going to die, and Jesus says, no, 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 not going to happen. And he says what? Get behind me, Satan. And the point was, Jesus had to continually show the disciples and explain to them, no, you don't get it. Yes, the kingdom is coming one day in power. It's literally coming. It's not just Jesus ruling and reigning in our hearts. It's Jesus is coming to set up his physical kingdom. But first, there's a pit stop. And that pit stop is the cross. And the disciples did not understand that. And not only did Jesus tell them that he was going to suffer, but what did he say to them? He says, if you're going to be my disciple... You must pick up your cross and follow me. You must be willing to die, to lay down your life. This isn't just say a prayer when you're five and then don't go to church again or do anything for God the rest of your life and you're good, you got your fire insurance. No, Jesus says the cost of discipleship is what he's telling us there, is everything. You give up your righteousness for Christ's righteousness. You give up your life for his life. And that was the heavy cost of what Jesus was telling his disciples would need to be paid to be his disciple. Not only would he die, but they would have to be willing to die as well. And they were 
blown away by this. They didn't know what to make of it. They saw all the miraculous healings. They saw his mighty power, and they couldn't deny the fact that this was from God. And yet, why was God saying he was going to do something that didn't make sense? Because they didn't understand the cross. And so Jesus gives them this kingly preview of his splendor, of his glory, as a sneak peek assurance of, hey, you know what? The kingdom is coming. And it's coming for all those, as he told Nicodemus, were born again, how? By grace, through faith, in his name. And that was only made possible through the cross. And so, just as the Old Testament scriptures promised, Jesus would rule and reign, but first, the pit stop of the cross must be made. And so right after that great mountaintop experience, the disciples come down, and what do they face? Hardship. And I was thinking about this. How many times has that happened for us? We have this great walk with God. Maybe we go to a retreat. Maybe, you know, whatever. We have a, a, a great Sunday together worshiping with God's people. And then what happens that following Monday? Or even on the drive home? We get hit. And so too happened here with the disciples. They come down from this mountaintop experience to face the demon-possessed boy, and the disciples couldn't cast it out. They failed. They failed miserably. Which was, as we just mentioned ago, something they had already done many times. And here they could not. And why not? And the reason is simple. They faced a powerful enemy. An enemy that was much more powerful than they were. An enemy that was much mightier than they were. An enemy that was much craftier than they were. Much smarter than they were. And you think about this. You think about the enemy that we face. When were they created? 30 years ago? 40 years ago? They've got lifetimes of knowledge and experience on us that we don't have. Like 10 times the amount, if not more, greatly more, way more. And so we're up against an infinitely smarter enemy. And this enemy is who? It's the demonic forces of the kingdom of darkness. See, there is another kingdom. There's a kingdom of light, which is Christ's kingdom, which is surely coming. And there's the kingdom of darkness, which is being defeated. And this isn't a yin and yang sort of thing. This is God's kingdom, and it's the weak kingdom. But right now, it looks like the weak kingdom's in power, but they're going to lose majorly in a big way. And why? Because of the cross. They've already been sealed and defeated at the cross. And praise God for that. But still, nonetheless, right now, they are reeling about trying to cause as much damage and harm as they can against the kingdom of light. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Make no mistake about it, we face a very real enemy. A very real enemy who, as we said a moment ago, is superior to us. And if we forget that, even for a moment, we're in for some serious trouble. And another thing, you think about this, how many Christians today, we talked about this a few weeks ago, looking at Barnapoles, how many Christians, evangelical Christians, don't even believe in the existence of a literal Satan? They just don't. They're like, oh, that's, that's myth. It's more of a figure. You know, they allegorize it to this. It's a symbol for evil that exists in our hearts. There's no real, you know, kind of boogeyman type character. It doesn't exist. And if that's your thinking, how well are you going to do standing against, wrestling against these principalities? You're going to fail miserably. But this kind of thinking is too primitive for our enlightened culture today, isn't it? The idea of devils and demons might be helpful in a pinch for scaring a child into doing what they're supposed to do, 
You know, but for us adults, like, come on. We're smarter than that. We don't need that. We're more enlightened than that. Do we really expect modern scientific man to believe in a red tight wearing devil with horns who carries a pitchfork? Okay, well, when you put it that way, no. I don't expect you to believe in that because that's not what the Bible describes. It's not, is it? What does the Bible describe Satan as? He's a fallen angel, the chief of angels who fell. 1 Peter 5.8 says this about this fallen angel. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Make no mistake about it, Satan is a roaring lion, and he does exist, and he does devour people. Not literally, but we do see them spiritually devoured, which does one day end in, spirit, in physical devouring. And to make matters worse, Satan is an expert at wearing Christian camo. He is. He's an expert at wearing Christian camouflage. So we're not even certain that it is of Satan or that the servant is of Satan. Check this out. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. it tells us that he camouflages himself how? As an angel of light, and no wonder so do his servants. Remember what Jesus told us a while back about the nature of the church and how, what this was going to look like this side of the kingdom? He says, there will be thorns and there will be wheat. And they will be side by side. And as we looked at that with those Darnells, what was the thing that we learned? We learned that the wheat, when it grows up, looks identical to the Darnell weeds. So the weeds and the wheat, they look almost exactly the same until right at the very end, the wheat sprouts the, what are they called? Somebody help me out. Sure, that. And the Darnells don't. And that's how you know the difference between the two. And tell me this. On the day of judgment, will it be easy to tell the difference? Yes. And that's the whole point Jesus keeps making when he says you will know them by their fruit. Not because fruit saves us, but because those who are saved will produce the wheat thingies you just mentioned that show that they are actually wheat, not weeds. So we do face a very serious and very dangerous and very real enemy. And if we forget that even for a moment, he'll eat us alive. Okay, now back to Matthew 17. What was wrong with this young boy besides the fact that he had a demon in him? Well, look at verse 15. He had seizures and he suffers terribly and he often falls into the fire and the water. Now the word here for seizures, the literal translation of this means to be moonstruck. Okay? And which means to be affected by the moon. And that's where we get our English word lunatic from. Luna being moon. Okay, that's where that comes from. That's the translation that the King James actually uses here. But the point is, the boy here, he wasn't moonstruck, was he? What was he? He was demonstruck. And he was demonstruck in a, in a big way, in a bad way. As Mark and Luke's account tell us, they tell us that it is the demon who is responsible for these seizures and trying to kill this boy by throwing his body into the fire or drowning him in the water. It's a pretty devious, evil thing to do, but yet that's what the demon is up to. And so in desperation, the father brings his boy to the disciples because he knows, hey, they've cast out demons before. Word's gotten around. Let's see if they can do this again. That would be great. Cast this demon out, will you please? But when they try, it doesn't work, does it? doesn't work even a little bit. And what's interesting is that in Mark's account of this situation, it tells us that the scene begins when? Immediately after Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. 
That's when it happens. And Mark tells us that when he comes down, he finds a great crowd around the other disciples, and they're in an argument. And who else is there? Tells us that the scribes are there. And the scribes are a group of people. Have they been positive towards Jesus and his ministry so far? No. No, they haven't. Now, what are they arguing about? Well, if you read Mark's account, it seems that it has something to do with the whole demon-possessed thing here going on, and most likely it has something to do with the fact that the, that the disciples tried to do it in the way they did it before, right? They just spoke and out they came as Jesus did, but it didn't work. Now, remember, why would they be arguing? Because how did the Jewish people, if you remember way back when we studied you know, the first casting out of demons in, in the book of Matthew, how did the religious leaders of Jesus' day cast out demons? Was it like Jesus did it? No, they had all this stuff to do, big rituals, all sorts of things going on with it. But Jesus, how did he cast out the demons? You, out. And they were gone. It was a night and day difference in terms of the power behind Jesus versus these religious leaders. See, unlike the religious leaders, Jesus just spoke and out the demons came. It was completely different. It worked 100% of the time. But now yet here, where Jesus' disciples, the ones who didn't go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It was the other ones who were left behind. They're standing there in front of the crowd and the scribes looking like powerless chumps. Not a good look. An embarrassing look. And so why did this happen? It happened because they looked at their own power. And so there the crowd was wondering, what's up with these guys? They cast out before, allegedly. Why can't they do it now? What happened? Did their power run out? Maybe they can't cast out demons. Maybe it was just a scam or a trick all along. And maybe if Jesus' disciples are a fraud, what if he is too? Surely these are the kind of thoughts that would run through the crowd's mind seeing the failure of these disciples. But as we know, no, Jesus is not a fraud, is he? Not at all. For his power is very much real. And his power is omnipotent power, which means all-powerful. It is divine power, which he has shown time and time again to be superior than the devils. Think about it. How many times now has Jesus cast out the demons? This isn't the first time. Like We've seen it over and over throughout these Gospels, and we don't even get all of the recounting, all the accounts of it happening. John tells us that if all the things Jesus did were written in a book, it would be too big for the world to hold. That's how many things Jesus did. We only get just a glimpse at it. And yet, how do the crowds continually respond to Jesus? With belief? No. With unbelief. Which is why Jesus says in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, who is is Jesus speaking to here? Well, is it the crowd, or is it the disciples for failing to cast out the demon? seems like it's both. If we read all the accounts, you know, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems like he's talking to both here. He's frustrated with both. Now, with the crowds, it's obvious why Jesus is upset, and it's because of their continual unbelief. Remember what happened back in Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus cast out a demon? They, the crowds are like, could this be the Son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And what do the religious leaders say? Say, no, 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 no. Yes, he cast out the demon, but you know how he did it? He did it through the power of the prince of demons. That was the unpardonable sin. And right there, boom, the kingdom offer was retracted from the Israelite people. And they lost the kingdom in their day. So that's why Jesus was upset with the crowds. They went along with the religious leaders 
who did not believe, but yet remained willful, willfully in their unbelief. But why is Jesus upset with the disciples then? Well, look at verse 20. He's upset with the disciples because of their little faith. That's it. So evidently, think about this logically, if before they were able to cast out the demons, and now they can't because they have little faith, what was the difference? Big faith, right? Big faith versus little faith was what enabled them to do that. And there's a lot we have to talk about with this because there's a whole lot of bad ideas out there about the difference between little faith and big faith. But why was their faith weaker here than before? Was it because they forgot to water their faith so it started withering like that plant that many of you have that hasn't been watered in months and you're just it's on life support? No. <laughs> That's not why. You can't water faith any more than you can water trust or any more than you can water hope. And why? Because if you tell me, hey, I trust, or hey, I hope, you don't, I don't know what you're saying. That's not, a fin- that's not a complete sentence. You haven't finished the thought. You have to trust in something or someone. You have to hope in something or someone. So if you say, hey, guess what? I have faith, like a lot of people do today. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just a person of faith. I have no idea what that means. Faith in what? What are you talking about? And so when Jesus tells the disciples that they failed to cast out the demon because of their small faith, he simply means they weren't putting their faith in God as they should. They weren't relying on God to defeat this very real powerful enemy that was before them. So now here's the other question. What then were they trusting in, if not God, to cast out the demon? What are, what's the other options here? Themselves. And what a conundrum here, because it's the same problem we face, don't we, as Christians today? Our battle is the same thing. Are we going to trust in God's power or our own power? And we know this why, because Mark's account tells us. Look what Mark, I'll just read it for you. I'll put it up here for you, even better, right? It says, Mark 9, 29, this kind can only come out by prayer. Right? This kind of exercising of a demon can only come out by prayer. And oh, isn't that so very interesting. No wonder they failed before they cast out demons by sitting on God's lap, but now here they are getting too big for their britches, thinking they could drive that car all by themselves when they couldn't, could they? And they crashed in a big way. Because the truth is, it is only by God's power that we can accomplish anything of spiritual value. It's the only power that enables us to stand firm against the fiery darts of the evil one. And if you try to stand firm in your own power, those darts are going to light you up, as evidenced here by the disciples. And this leads us to our second point. To avoid a spiritual crash, we need to remember the power of the enemy, but also the power of our God. Look at verse 16 with me. And Jesus said, bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. No delayed healing here, right? No. Uh, No progressive healing over the next few years and maybe even decades like we see with these jokers on TV. Is instant, immediate, powerful, divine, instantaneous healing, which is something the crowds, as we said a moment ago, have seen countless times, haven't they? They saw the power of God at work in Jesus over and over again, and yet they were still faithless. 
which is why Jesus says, O you faithless generation. And before now, we judge them too harshly, church. We need to stop and think, am I any different? Because if we're honest about it, I would say, well, in part, yes, we're different because we do have faith, but not in totality. Not in totality. We are not totally different here. Because how often do we as the children of God doubt the power of God? All the time. How many times has God been powerfully at work in our lives? Too many to count. And oftentimes you don't even know it's at work in your life until you look back and see the fruit of that power at work in your life changing you in ways you couldn't have done in a billion years. Bringing about circumstances in your life that you look back and you see God's kind and sovereign guiding hand that you had no idea. Actually, in that moment, you thought he was nowhere to be found. And then looking back, you're like, oh no, he was there all along, wasn't he? And yet, when the next difficult circumstance comes up, what do we do? We doubt. We don't believe. We question his power in our lives. When, there, when we are in the midst of that difficult marriage, what do we sometimes do? We doubt his power to be able to heal it, and so how does that manifest itself? Either in depressed feelings or lack of prayer. We stop praying. We stop going before the throne of God, asking him to heal what only he can heal. How many times does this apply when it comes to that unbeliever we prayed for? Maybe it was a child or a friend or even a spouse. And we prayed for them, we prayed for them, and we said, okay, you know what, God's power must not be evident. There's a guy at our men's Bible study Friday. He was telling me how he had three friends. One of them he prayed for for a long time. He ended up coming saved. Another one prayed for a long time, finally came saved. And the third one he's still praying for. Don't give up. And this has been over decades. And yet how often are we faithless and we give up because we question God's will and his power to heal? Back to the marriage thing. How many Christian marriages have either ended in divorce or gotten to the point where they are basically divorced as they're married in name only? Practically, they very well might be divorced since they gave up working on their marriage years years ago as they've agreed to basically be functioning roommates. Maybe they still work together on some things like raising the children because after all that has to happen or that business that won't hold itself together on their own, on its own. But when it comes to having a close, intimate, God-glorifying marriage, they gave up and waved that white flag years ago. And why? Because they doubt the power of God. They've stopped going to him in prayer, asking him to work the miracle only he can work. And just like with the disciples, the proof of that is in the pudding. It's in the prayer. For if we are prayerless about our problems, we prove that we believe our God is powerless. Have you thought of it that way before when it comes to prayer? I mean, yeah, don't approach prayer as just checking a box. Approach prayer as, I am going to the all-powerful God of the universe to ask him to move his sovereign hand and do things that I could never do in a million years. Exodus 15, 16 talks about that sovereign hand. It says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. 
One more. Psalm 147 says, He determined the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. And how many stars are there? I don't know. More than I can count. I quit at about 100. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. That means you can't measure it. Church, we serve a God who spoke the universe into existence at the creation with the power of his voice, and he upholds its existence by the power of his might, as Colossians tells us. This means the molecules, the atoms in your body, they stay where they're supposed to be because Christ continually says, stay there. And if he didn't, it'd be gone. We serve a God who lit the fires of a trillion burning suns with the power of his voice. That's a powerful God. A God who is completely sovereign over all things. And make no mistake, as Proverbs tells us, he's sovereign over the will of man. He bends the hearts of the kings as streams of water as he wills. And yet, what do we often do? We doubt it. We fear. We question. And we show our lack of faith by not going to this God in prayer, asking him to powerfully work as he's promised to do. Anything you ask in my name, according to my will, will be done. Do you believe that? Don't tell me you believe it. Show me you believe it. Tell me about your prayer life. Though God has promised that all things work together for the good of his children, when we face trials, we so easily panic, don't we? We so easily worry. We so easily, to use Jesus' words, have little faith. Whether it be ungodly politicians who frustrate us beyond belief, whether it be uh, aggressive, warring nations that can't stay within their territory, whether it be financial difficulties, relational difficulties, or even health difficulties. You name the difficulty, as the children of God, we're to trust in his mighty name, believing, Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good for those who love God. Not for everybody, it's for those who love God, that all things, including ungodly politicians, aggressive warring nations, financial difficulties, relational difficulties, health difficulties, you staying with me, all those things work together for our good. God isn't taking a nap. He's aware of them. His sovereign hand is over them. It doesn't matter what the difficulty is. And so as we sang at the start of our service, now you know why we picked the song, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's our God. And this mighty fortress, the bulwark never failing, is an all-powerful God. And so we must depend on him, which leads us to our final point. To avoid a spiritual crash, we must remember the power of our enemy, the power of our God, but third, the power of our dependence. Look at verse 20 here with me. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. When it comes to this understanding of great faith versus little faith, there's a whole lot of squirrely stuff out there, isn't there? A whole lot of just plain silly nonsense out there. And what makes it nonsense is that it is a complete and total misunderstanding of what faith is and where we place our faith. That's why it gets so messed up. See, the person with big faith isn't the one who says, oh, no, no, not me. I never doubt. You know, that sort of thing. They doubt, 
right? That's, doubting is not the sign of somebody with little faith per se, all right? So saying that you've, you have complete and total confidence in God at all times and all places, that your faith never wavers, leads me to want to say, I don't think you have faith at all in the first place. Because that's not what faith looks like or sounds like. And why do I say that? Because over and over in the Bible, you find these mountain men of faith showing faithlessness, showing struggles, showing doubt. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, the disciples, Paul himself. Anybody here want to compete with them for highest on the totem pole of faith? I don't. And yet they doubted at times. They were struggling to try to make sense of the darkness of this kingdom and wondering why God's sovereign, all-powerful hand isn't moving in the ways they think it should move. So we find that with the pillars of faith, the great men of faith. You could look to Hebrews 11 for that. But what makes these men in the halls of faith of Hebrews 11 wasn't because of their great faith that they mustered, that they put together. It was because of the faith they had in their great God, regardless of how strong that faith was. And so, remarkably enough, we see some insight into this in Mark's account of this text, where he talks about the young demon-possessed boy, and here's what we find. I'm going to read the whole few verses here, 22 through 26. You don't need to turn there, but here it is. Here's the Father speaking to Jesus. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, and don't miss this, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing in him terribly, it came out. You see the beauty of this father's faith? The father is struggling to believe. He's struggling with his doubt. And out of that struggle, he doesn't just embrace it and say, ah, whatever, it makes no sense. Your disciples couldn't do it. We're out of here. Let's go. No. He says, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. And remarkably, what does Jesus do? Does he say, be gone from me, you vile sinner? How dare you question my authority? No, he doesn't, does he? He sees this man pleading for help, struggling to believe, and he says, what do you mean, if you can? And don't read that like Jesus is saying, what do you mean, if you can? No, read that like he's got a twinkle in his eye with a little bit of a smile, being like, what do you mean, if you can? And that's all I have time to explain for why it's that way to be interpreted. But... Read it like he's smiling and winking even. And then Jesus does what? He goes on not to reject the man, but to give him the evidence, to give him the miracle, which does what for his faith that he's struggling in? It surely bolsters it. And why? What makes this faith strong? Well, it's not the strength of your faith that makes you have big faith. It's the strength of the object of your faith. One theologian puts this in a way that I think is just absolutely brilliant, so I'm just going to read it for us. Here's what he says. Imagine you are on a cliff. Where am I? Where'd it go? There we go. But imagine you are on a cliff. I don't know where it's at. I'll just read it. Here we go. Imagine you're on a cliff and losing your footing and begin to fall. 
And just beside you, you see, as you fall, a branch sticking out from the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope. How can it save you? It seems more than strong enough to support your weight, but how then can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can actually hold you up, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Does that make sense? See how this fits with Hebrews 11.1? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me ask you, does having assurance mean that we have 100% certainty at all times? No. Does it mean that we can even get close to that 100% on a daily basis? No. It means we put our assurance in Christ even though we do not see. Even though we do not have 100% certainty. And think about this. How could you have 100% certainty in your faith? We're blind. We don't see. And yet, what do we do anyways? We cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we go on to then trust in him by faith, knowing that he is the only one who truly sees. He is the only one who can truly save. For he is the only branch, the son of David, who is the son of Jesse, who can powerfully save us. And so it is to him and him alone whom we must depend. Because if we don't, we will crash and fail. As God's children, though our eternal destinies are certainly secure, Nothing's going to change that. Nothing's plucking us out of his hand. However, we certainly can experience some pretty brutal spiritual crashes, can't we? And sometimes those lead to even physical crashes in our life too. Of course we can. And so unless our eyes stay upon Christ, unless we depend upon his power, we're going to sink just like Peter did when he walked on the water. And so what must we do then? We must keep our eyes on Christ as we take every single single step of faith, one at a time, looking to the author and finisher of our faith. Another question for you. How many steps does it take to stumble? Just one. Which means, church, you and I, as we do this walk of faith, we are one step away from stumbling. Not to be lost and to be cast out of the kingdom of God, but to stumble spiritually in a way that is not good for us or good for others. Just as Peter was one step away from sinking. That's all it takes. Look at the disciples here. One minute they're casting out demons in the power of God, and the next minute they're being defeated by him. And this tells us something very, very important about the Christian life, which is this. You cannot live off of last week's victories any more than you can live off of last week's lunch. You can't. Right? Even if that a couple weeks ago you ate a whole bunch of Thanksgiving dinners day after day after day, how's that going to sustain you weeks from then, months from then? It's not. And so church, our walk with Christ, the walk of faith is one step at a time, which means it's a daily thing. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor in a church putting sermons together every week. If I am not walking with Christ daily, I am one step away from stumbling. And so too are you, which means that great faith 
What it really is, it's a small, imperfect, dim-sighted faith that goes to the Lord and daily trusts in Him. And why? Because it realizes that on its own, it's completely hopeless. Psalm 27 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So I asked you this morning, what are you trusting in? What or who are you depending on? Because make no mistake about it, you are trusting in something. Let me talk to the parents for a second. As you strive to raise up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, are you trusting in good schooling, whatever form you've chosen to do? Is that what you're trusting in to accomplish that raising them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Are you trusting in good, consistent parenting to change the hearts of your children to love Christ? Or any other good thing that you certainly should do. But the question is, are you trusting in the Lord as you prayerfully depend upon Him to save your children's souls? Or are you trusting in the power of your good parenting? It's a harsh reality check sometimes, isn't it? The truth is, nothing other than the power of God at work in our children's lives and their hearts can actually save them can actually regenerate their hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And so we need to, parents, be praying for our children that despite our faithlessness that we display more often than we would want to admit, isn't going to detract them, distract them from Christ. Don't get me wrong, all these things can be powerful tools in the hands of a powerful God, and we shouldn't set those tools aside. However, we must recognize that is the power of God and God alone that saves. The second a preacher forgets that, or the people forget that, or the people forget that the preacher is not preaching in his own power, they start giving credit to the person instead of the power of God, we will quickly find out how powerless that person is, won't we? We will quickly find out how quickly they are capable of falling with just one step, just as the disciples did. And so if we want to have mountain-moving faith, we have to be people of prayer. Because prayer is how we depend on God, largely. We have to be people of prayer who are daily going to our powerful God and asking him to work powerfully in us. And so practically, here's what this looks like. Pray for yourselves. Pray for your family. Pray for your church family. Pray for your pastor. And don't stop, please. Because weak, powerless people desperately need it. We need the power of God at work in our lives. Isaiah 40, 29 says this, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isaiah 40, 31 says, But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And let me just say, do you know why that is true? Because Christ is the one, though he could run, became crippled for us. Christ is the one, though he had all the joy of heaven, he became weary for us. He fainted for us on the cross. Why? So that this passage might be true for us. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? We must remember, church, that we face a powerful enemy, but we also have an infinitely powerful God who has promised to work powerfully in our lives if we would but depend on him. So my question is, are you depending on him? 
Don't tell me you are. Show me you are. Show me by your dependence upon God in your active and regular prayer life. Because that's what's going to empower your, empower your faith. Show me that you're depending on God in your Bible reading, which is food for your faith. Show me your dependence upon God by your faithful and regular commitment to obeying what Scripture commands us to do, which is to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which we're doing right now, as we meet weekly as God's people to be built up and build others up, as we've been learning about in our Fellowship and Focus Hour. And show me your dependence upon God by living in His strength as you live your life worshiping and serving Him instead of the things of this world, which are so infinitely inferior. The things of this world are fading away, but the things of the world to come will last for all of eternity, and we gain those by serving Christ. May we as a church live victoriously over the enemies we face by the power of God as we depend upon him. Father, I thank you for this text this morning, Lord. Father, I pray that you would empower your people. Help us to see all the ways we didn't have time to talk about today, Lord, all the examples of how we live faithless as people of faith. Help us to recognize that we need you every hour. So, Father, help us to walk in the Spirit, one step at a time by faith, as we put our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, I pray for the one who here, who is here, who has not come to trust in Christ. Maybe they are trusting in a prayer they said when they were young. Maybe they're trusting in their church attendance or their Bible reading or their good works or just whatever. Father, help them to see that all their good works before you are nothing but filthy rags. And the only way that the unrighteous can be made righteous is through faith in the one and only righteous one. The one who came down from heaven, set his glory aside so that he might be humbled and serve even to the point of death on a cross. So Father, help us to live our lives out of the power of the cross recognizing that that alone is what enables us to live successfully as sons and daughters of the King and not crash and burn as we would all be destined to otherwise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song today? Which is, Yet not I, but Christ through me.